0: Hi, it's Mike Reese. I've been writing for The Simpsons for 30 years, and you're listening to Four Finger Discount. Four Finger Discount, dude.
1: Welcome to Four Finger Discount
2: and this week I'm incredibly excited because we have a very special episode for the listeners, don't we Mitch? We do. Normally when we say that it means that we were too lazy to do any work and we're banging on something that we did three years ago. But today uh, we have been lucky enough to interview Mike Reese, One of the most humble men I've ever spoken to. And so happy and just a really... (laughs) Really beautiful guy. Mike's one of those people that... uh, I can call him Mike now. We're tight. Um, Mike's one of those guys that you speak to and you believe in all the good in the world. Like, it's just suddenly everything's optimistic and uh, you feel happier like I, I i noticed myself about 40 minutes into the interview just really starting to smile a lot and i was thinking this sounds like this guy's smiling a lot and yeah. it's fucking nine in the morning where yeah. he is i don't <laughs> smile until one in the afternoon
1: at the earliest and that's a good day he's just released his springfield confidential book he could have put out a book about anything and everyone would have gotten around him because he's just one of those people you just yeah. gravitate towards and
2: he's a, a genuinely good writer so oh, it's, it's I mean, so hilarious the book we will t- obviously it's, it's covered a bit in the interview but our it's, book is doomed Oh, it's fucked. <laughs> we're fucked. We had a good run. <laughs> no, no. But no, no, I think ours, our book and his book can can harmoniously coexist. Cause Staff he, and fan. Exactly. Like, his is the inside perspective and we're, we're from the outside looking in. The little puppy in the window that wants to be bought and needs to be bought because Mike's already made his millions. Yes. <laughs> maybe we can unite for a third book. Yeah. It's never going to happen, but yeah. maybe. Yeah. If you're out there, Mike, if you're listening. I mean, if you want to talk about like the privi- like the upper class and the underclass, like Mike has Mike went to Harvard. Mike is in a position that he can have gone to Harvard and shit on Harvard and say, fuck Harvard, it was some it was the worst four years of my life. I couldn't afford to look at Harvard. <laughs> like, if I went to Harvard's website, it would come up with a pop-up blocker going enter credit card details (laughs) to read curriculum and I'd go I can't afford it I can't afford to read the menu
1: of Harvard I've got it I've just thought of the trilogy in my head you've got Mike's book Mm. then you read our book and then you listen to this interview yeah that'll work well yes both worlds combining. Yeah. Worlds are colliding.
2: But yeah, so you'll enjoy it. It's, a, it's about an hour long interview, Owen, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast by now. You already know how long yeah. this episode's going to Which be. We say but- the tidbit. So, we asked Mike, how long have you got? He says an hour. I hear an hour. You go, oh, half an hour's fine. I'll look at you and go, no. Yeah. He said an hour. Yep, that was a mistake. <laughs> mistake on my part. Um, like, don't, don't do this. <laughs> blame, blame. I'd like to say blame Australia's shitty internet connection, but no, because you heard it correctly. I just, I don't know. I guess I went in assuming... I thought twenty thirty, that's what we usually can. Yeah, I was like, Oh, you'll be a busy guy. Most most of these people don't have the time. I feel like had it I mean I, I feel like we could have had him for two. Yeah. Maybe we can have him back. I would love to have him back. Maybe it could be a co host. Five finger discount.
1: My favourite part of the whole interview was the start, but it turns out he was following our tracks the whole way and we we're writing our book. Yes. I've got to beat them. Yeah. <laughs> so we beat him to the finish line. Exactly right. <laughs> but he That's beat be- us to the bank.
2: <laughs> That's because he took two years to write his and we did ours in a mad scramble of three months. Yeah. With a slave driving publisher cracking a whip behind us. But it's been my favourite interview we've Hugh, done to If you're still today. listening, by the way, g'day. <laughs> <laughs> it's been my favourite cast interview we've done to date by far. What do you think? Uh yeah, no, as far as I felt like that was the most comfortable. it is the most comfortable, it's the most natural, and I really think you guys are going to get the most out of it as mm. well. He also covered more so than um I guess when you're interviewing the cast, a lot of them done the interview rounds a lot. And as much as Mike has as well, the stories felt less rehearsed. They felt yeah. more natural what he was talking about. So um that was really cool to be able to to delve into his mind. Now, before we get into the interview, Dando, we should point out uh, there's no mailbag this week. Apologies for that. That is largely because... A couple of listener questions. Well, yeah, there's a few listener questions from our patrons that made it in there. But so we will cover off... Everything that we normally do, we'll do it now because we're not going to come back and do a tag at the end as well. So try and I pronounce Big Roddy's Rip and Rib Shack? Uh, I asked Mike to do it. Um, <laughs> actually, oh, he comes—he he comes to Australia, a bit. We should—we should hook oh, up. Let's get Mike there at Big Roddy's Rip and Ribs. He says he comes to Australia every two or three years. Let's yeah. make this happen. Um, Surely he has to do a press tour for his book. But an immense thank you yet again to Big Roddy's Rip and Rib Shack. Mm-hmm. God, I, I was. You every time. Right time, I know I get it. I, I know I got it right that time, but it still feels wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm waiting for you to say rig every single time. Yeah, or Rick and Rib
1: Shack, something, something. Big Ruddy's Rib Shack, Big Ruddy's Ribs Check out their menu; it's delicious.
2: It is. Um, I actually my uh my mother in law just a- arrived to Victoria, and she was raving about this rib place in Brisbane that she went to before the airport. I said. Is it by chance Big Roddy's Rip and Rib Shack? She said no, it's Big Roddy's Rip and Rig Shack. And I said, "Trace, are you sure you got that correct?" And she went, "Shit, no, Rib Shack, that's the one." She went there. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, she went there and loved it. On your recommendation, I'm assuming, No, like- just just went. She doesn't listen to the podcast. Oh, um, you know, she's over 50. <laughs> um, she has but, sense. But yeah, she just went and so without even knowing the connection, was raving about the ribs. Fantastic. And it's worth it. Outside of that, what else do we need to talk about? Trivia? You got trivia for me this week? Um <laughs> How does Mike spell his last name? R-E-A? Okay. Uh, can we have uh, an alternate title for the interview? Oh, no, don't you put me on the spot. What have you got? Um, alternate title for the interview. Uh, Mike Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Makes no sense, but whatever. Reese's Pieces. That's great. There we go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that should have been a chapter title. <laughs>
2: it should have been, actually. <laughs> In his book. Yeah. Um, it, it is a really, really hilarious Uh, It's amazing What is that really really hilarious Like it's a It's a consistently funny book Anecdotes Anecdotal With some really great jokes Thrown in There'll never be another Simpsons book like it I'm not sure why Anyone would even try Writing a Simpsons book after this. No Unless Al decided To pick up a pen And try one himself in which case it would be like it going over the same stuff, but just with perspective, I guess. Yeah, 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 possibly. But I mean, it's it's the ultimate in what you'd be looking for. Yes,
1: Springfield Confidential is available. I don't think it's in stores yet in Australia. I couldn't find available it. on Amazon. You can order yeah. it in. I've ordered it from uh, Book Depository as well online. You'll find it somewhere. Make sure you check it out, Springfield Confidential. It is a must read. But now our interview with Mike Reese.
2: Welcome to Four Finger Discount. Our guest today is Mike Reese, a man that you may know as a writer and former showrunner from The Simpsons, co-creator with Al Jean of The Critic. He's the man behind some of The Simpsons' greatest episodes, including Stark Raving Dad, The Way We Was, Lisa's Pony, and Round Springfield. He's recently released a book called Springfield Confidential, which he's here to talk about today, but you'll all probably remember him from one of his rare on-screen performances as Oil Can Guzzler in the comedy sci-fi <laughs> hit Attack of the uh-huh. Bee Movie Monster, a film with an an estimated budget, according to IMDB, of roughly 350 million Paraguayan Guarani. Mike, what was it about Oil Can Guzzler that compelled you to finally step in front of the camera?
0: You know, I, I, I saw that on IMDB, and I actually contacted them, and I said, I didn't do this. Oh, and no. Said, no, and they said, yes, you did. And... <laughs> I guess I did it, I, I forgot completely, and I looked it up, yeah, a friend of mine made a movie, I didn't, I, I guess I didn't, I didn't even know he was filming, maybe I was just <laughs> drinking oil, I have no memory of it at all, I'm sure it was just an hour out of my day. But... He
2: fingered you. <laughs> what I was going to suggest is perhaps it was uh, ESPN reporter Mike Reese, who I've been following on Twitter by mistake for the last few months. Have you been covering the NBA draft? <laughs>
0: I do get a lot of that, Mike Reese. We've been in touch, and uh, it was it was cute at first, because I was the famous Mike Reese, and he was this new guy, and now he's much more famous than me. Not that that takes much, but, uh, <laughs> but there he is. And it is funny, too, because we got the same name, and he actually wound up living in the same tiny town I grew up in, in Bristol, Connecticut, and yet... We have nothing in common. His life is sports. I don't know anything about sports. If it was a
2: bad uh, sort of Hollywood movie, you know that you guys would end up going to fight in a war. <laughs> one of the two of you would die <laughs> <laughs> and then come back and take the other sweetheart.
1: <laughs> so, Mike, Springfield Confidential's just been released. It's going gangbusters. You must just be over the moon, number one and number two on Amazon.
0: It is very big. It's very big and... Uh, even more important to me, the fans are really happy with it, and even the super obsessed fans who I thought, well, they know everything in this book, uh, they're getting stuff out of it. So it's really, it's 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 been so pleasant all around. Uh, as a Jewish man, I can't find anything to complain about, and it's unsettling to me.
1: <laughs> I must say, though, it makes preparing for an interview with you very difficult because. I had a lot of questions mapped out, read your book, you answered them all in there.
0: I absolutely did. You know, uh, yeah, I do a lot of public speaking, and that's where the book came from. Was sort of, I've traveled all over the world. I've been to Australia speaking at least three or four times. I've been to India and Israel and Chile and China. I've been everywhere in the world, and there's Simpsons fans everywhere, and they all have the same goddamn 50 questions. And so I've had 20 years to kind of know what the questions are, work out answers that are funny and informative. And so that made, so the book has been really road tested. It's been tested. The jokes have been tried out in front of literally 50,000 people. So it should be funny, should be informative, but there's nothing left. I used them all up, and in the six months since I finished the book, nobody has asked me a question that I can't say, oh, it's in the book.
2: That's actually um, both like it's a little bit upsetting
0: that, that you um,
2: have to keep going out and repeating yourself. You would hope now, though, after the book comes out, and I mean, clearly it's it's selling very well. That hopefully people will be able to work a little bit harder to give you something new next time.
0: Well, I don't mind. I, you know, unlike college, I know all the answers here. <laughs> I, I, I'm very happy about that. And you know, the book climaxes. I think the very last page of the book is why are they yellow? Why are the Simpsons Mm -hmm. yellow? Because that was the first time after giving hundreds of lectures was a five-year-old kid asked me, why are they yellow? And I said, I have no idea. I never thought about it. And I went to work and I asked around and nobody had ever thought about it. No one had an answer. So it took a little detective work. I'm not going to say it now because then you really have no reason to get the book, but it's in there.
2: Well, there you go. A reason to not only buy the book, but to read it all the way through to the last page. <laughs> Chronologically, <laughs> don't skip ahead.
1: The good thing is that it's one of those books where you can pick it up at any point and there's something entertaining on every single page. You don't have to you don't have to start at the beginning. You can pick it up at anywhere.
0: It was very... Like Tolstoy, I write to be read on the toilet. Uh, <laughs> I really... I have no problem with that. I pictured people reading it on the toilet all over the, America and... That's fine with me. Uh, you
2: join the great literary brains, Tolstoy, Flint. <laughs> 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 the many toilet times. Can I ask on the book, we recently, uh, about six months ago, we published a book that was sort of a fan's perspective looking back on what it was like growing up with the show. Uh, it came out when I was four years old, uh, maybe six by the time it actually aired in Australia, but I was at a very formative age. It actually occurred to me today that... I'm speaking to someone that I've never met who probably had a very big influence on my own sensibility when it comes to comedy. But that aside, I noticed the inside jackets on your book were a lot of donuts, animated donuts. Our, our book also had an animated donut. And we must have had six or seven weeks of emails back and forth with lawyers <laughs> making sure we didn't use one that was copyrighted to Fox and could get us sued. I want to know, does a man working on the inside have that same problem about frosting and the particular number of sprinkles that a donut can have on his book?
0: No, you guys made the biggest mistake you can make in publishing, which is you asked permission. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, it's so funny because it it forms a complete circuit. uh, I'll back it up because like a year ago, you guys, I think, wrote to me. I think he actually wrote to my wife and said, (laughs) can you help on this book? Can we interview you for our book? And I was writing my book at the time. And I just I didn't want to tell you, oh, I'm writing my own book. I'm sorry, because then you might go, oh, well, let's rush our book out and get it out first. And it was sort of a dick move on my part. but you know, <laughs> We're all writing the same book. And so I just didn't answer the email. And if you can believe it, that bothered me every single day for the past year. I go, I always answer my emails. I always want to be nice to fans of the show. Uh, so I'm working on my book, and then your, I see your book, and it's got a big donut on the cover. And I go, <laughs> I said, they're not allowed to do that. I know Fox is very protective of the friggin' donut. And uh, But once your book came out with a donut, and then another book came out with a donut, I said— well screw it i'm gonna do donuts too so i i took your donuts boys
2: (laughs) (laughs) my theory behind the donut was less about borrowing from the simpsons and more i was just thinking no one's picking up a book because brendan dando and mitch grinter wrote about it but maybe if we can make trick them into thinking it's a diet book like i quit sugar or something (laughs) like that then that might help shift some units
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's a beautiful donut It's, it's very appealing it's uh You know, I'm just like you guys too. In that, I did not ask ask Fox for permission. I wrote this book, and I knew if I asked, they'd say no. If I asked Jim Brooks, he'd say no. You know, just because you fear the worst, and you know what, it, it does you no good if you're Fox to have a book, an unauthorized book, come out. So I didn't ask, and that was it. I go, well. These guys, four finger discount had a donut. I can have a
2: donut. <laughs> well, bless you for not having dobbed us into them. Um, you may not have answered the email, but you also didn't get us sued, so I appreciate that. Can I ask in your book, you are uh, you have a brilliant joke in there. It's it, it's a sort of standard joke. It's one about guys in prison just yelling out joke numbers, and the punchline being some folks know how to tell them, some folks don't. Right. What does that mean to you as a writer of a show, where often You're not the one who gets to deliver these jokes.
0: Oh, you know, it's great on The Simpsons. I know when we write a joke, it gets the best delivery ever from our cast. They always make it better. They never make it worse. We can remember literally maybe, what did I calculate? There's about 600,000 jokes in the history of The Simpsons. And, uh, no, 60,000. I don't want to, I don't want to get my math up. 60,000 jokes. And we all remember like the two or three times where the cast screwed them up, but two or three out of 60,000, like it originally in the Simpsons movie, I think it may still be in there when there's a clown named Scuzzo. Do you remember this? yep. He was originally named Scummo the clown. And then we we heard from lawyers because there is a scummo the clown. Oh. So we changed it to Scuzzo and we get to that part we're reading the script out loud and Julie Kavner called him Scuzzo, as if it was an <laughs> Italian name. It, it just wrecked our beautiful joke, and that's the only time it comes to mind of somebody uh, the cast not delivering on one of our gags.
2: Who was the best at elevating? Because we watch and we often comment on how the late, great Phil Hartman could take a line that wouldn't look overly funny on page and just hit it out of the park and turn it into something else entirely. Do you remember ever, like, maybe you wrote a line and you thought, even to yourself, that was just filler, and then you get to the table read or you watch it on the TV and you find that it's actually better than you realised?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, all the time. I mean, the, the the most famous example maybe is was the line. Ha ha. It was Nelson. The first time Nelson was supposed to say ha ha. It's grandpa says is yelling at him and he says, I'm going to take off my belt to you. And he takes off his belt and his, his pants fall down. And it just said Nelson says ha ha. And whatever it was at the table reading, you know, where the cast gets together with the writers and reads the script out loud. Nancy Cartwright went, ah, and it was just, it was just like a bomb went off in the room. It was one of the biggest laughs I ever heard. And, you know, that's how things become runners on the Simpsons is when they surprise us how funny they are and how they catch us off guard. I mentioned, too, in the book, Hank Azaria is, is so good at taking a one line, one line character, a generic character and making something funny out of it that they become recurring characters and the proof of this is all his famous characters don't really have names you know we just never thought they'd be back so his characters are bumblebee man and sea (laughs) captain comic book guy old jewish man these were just supposed to be one shot one line characters and they keep coming back because he always makes so much of them
1: he was stamp the ticket guy correct
0: He's stamped, just stamp the ticket, man. Yeah, that's his best character. He had one, line, <laughs> one line that said, just stamp the ticket. And it made us laugh so much that that came back. Just stamp the ticket, man. <laughs> wise guy, that's another one. The wise guy oh, voice. I love the wise guy.
1: He's the yeah. most flexible character on the show. You can put him into any situation.
0: Any situation, any face. He's been all different colors. He's zelig.
1: One of my favorite quotes in your book is, the perfect joke is out there if you're willing to spend time searching for it. Do you ever find yourself watching reruns on television and wishing you'd spent a few more extra hours on a particular gag to make it funnier? Or was it important to just, once it's out there, just accept it and appreciate it?
0: You know, no. They always, they bother me forever. And I give the example of the name of the comic book store. Mm. Again, you know, it was, I'm going to say season two. We did three men in a comic book. Yep. And we do that episode and it introduced comic book guy who, again, we didn't think was worth giving a name to. We thought it was going to be one time, one shot here. We're going to see comic book guy. And it was two in the morning and we finished writing and we're about to go home. And somebody said, Oh, we need a funny name for the comic book store. And I was like, Oh Jesus. And so we, we just sat there and we pitched around and somebody pitched, I think we all kind of piled on said, okay, we'll call it the Androids Dungeon and baseball cards, or I don't even know what the thing is called, but we just said, who cares? We'll never see it again. And since then, we've probably been back there 120 times. The joke isn't funny, and it drives me crazy every time I see it, that Androids Dungeon, not a funny name. And then a universal theme parts, probably the ones in Australia too. They built it. They built Comic Book Guy's store. And there it is in reality, Android's Dungeon. Someone actually painted the sign and put it in there. And I hate it. I hate it. And I, I go, I know it was two in the morning. I wish we'd stayed a little longer and got that better.
1: Does it have to always be funny though?
0: That's a great question. Uh, it doesn't have to always be funny, but... It, a joke should always be funny, you know. It could have just been called comics or something like that. Comics, etc. It's just we were kind of going for a joke and didn't hit there. The other one that I think about this all the time. It just shows you that I'm a little obsessive. I think was uh, it's in a future episode where Bart is working for a demolition company, and he's, you see him operating a wrecking ball, and it's the company's called Down with Buildings Incorporated, and I go that's not good that's, <laughs> that's not quite a good joke they should and i wasn't there then i i wish they'd worked a little harder on that not that in the 20 years since i've seen it have i thought of a better name
2: on the flip side can you think of a a moment it might be hard to come up with one off the top of your head but has there been a joke where you might have slaved over for six and a half hours and thought, yes. This is perfection. I will never write anything funnier than this and then it just blows by like a leaf in the wind and no one notices it.
0: Oh gosh. You know, yes, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. I can't think of one offhand. Uh, when I used to write for ALF, and you guys might know that show. That before the Simpsons, the show ALF with the yeah. the puppets who, yep. who looked like brown genitals. Um, <laughs> yeah. ALF was so huge in Australia. You know, our cast members, the humans in in ALF, didn't get recognized anywhere. And then the young girl, I think, in the show went to Australia and was just mobbed and became a guest (laughs) of the state. They loved ALF down there. And uh, Al and I wrote a a really funny little run uh, about ALF trying to – he broke the blender, trying to make a cocktail on the rocks, and he put real rocks in the blender (laughs) – classic elf so they're trying to fix it and willie the father says oh give me the screwdriver and he hands him the screwdriver and that's all ben he goes i was trying to make a screwdriver too so (laughs) yes thank you for that pity laughter no no,
2: that's (laughs) not pity i had an elf doll that i used to go to bed with yeah so if if you believe that my parents actually thought that as you said that brown genital looking thing was safe to send a child (laughs) to sleep with some kids had bought Simpson dolls. We had Alf dolls.
0: We Alf was uh it was a great show at times. And uh so that was it. Al and I thought this is really funny and clever and we it got to a table reading and nobody laughed and we did something we've never done since. We said, let's give it another try. So it got all the way to a run through where everyone came and they did it again and it still didn't get a laugh and it's the kind of thing I've never understood why. I mean, you know, I'm not pitching it well. It seemed really funny and clever. Nobody liked it. And it was a lesson we took to The Simpsons. It's like nothing gets a second try. If it bombs, it bombs. And uh, don't don't push for your joke again.
1: Well, in saying that, you mentioned in your book how Bart's prank calls to Moe never got a laugh in the table reads.
0: Yeah. Did you just
1: persist with them because they were great at filling in time? Was that the only reason you persisted with them?
0: We persisted with the, with his phone calls to Mo because everyone sort of latched onto him. They knew, oh, here is a tradition. Here is something. You know, it looked like a little gimmick of the show. It just surprised us every time we tried them. And they were much harder to write than, they, than you might think. It was, uh, you know, because they had to be that right mix of kind of smart and stupid and sort of clever puns and that kind of thing. And then. Bart would make the phone call. He had the funny name Then Mo would always make it worse. (laughs) Then he would get heckled in the bar. Then we had to write an angry rejoinder for Mo some way, a funny way he was going to torture Bart. So it took about three hours out of our day to write one of these prank phone calls. And then, yes, we would get to a table reading and nobody laughed. And (laughs) I, th- I think it was partly, it was a uh, legacy. It was in the pilot. Matt Groening, Sam Simon wanted to do it. We did it for a while. And yeah, everybody remembers them, but they just they never got a friggin' laugh. And it was four different jokes in each segment. None of them got a laugh. And that was it. I think uh, Al and I phased them out by season four because we just got, this, this is pointless. Do you think...
2: That's harder on you guys to take in the table readers, writers, or is that hard for Nancy and Hank having to act out these bits over and over again that are constantly
0: bombing? You know, up till this second, I never gave them a thought. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. I never thought about how it must feel to be these actors doing bad jokes. <laughs> um, you know, they never complain. They never complain. And so. I I, that was it. I never thought of their human feelings. I have a friend uh, if you know the show Sledgehammer another show I wrote on uh, my friend was in the star Sledgehammer David Rashi, was in a play on Broadway that later was named the worst play of the year and it was it was a comedy and the writer and director got in a fight and the writer flew back to London. So they were stuck performing this first draft. And it was terrible. And my poor friend David had to go out every night doing these bad jokes that he knew wouldn't work. And he had a big moment where he would burst through a door and say a big joke line that never got a laugh. And he he just said how much he hated it standing behind the door knowing he was going to go out there and bomb every night.
1: Has a voice cast member ever questioned how funny one of your jokes for example, are they saying this joke isn't going to be funny and you have to really sell it to them, but they don't want to do it and you se- essentially have to force them to do it and then they realize it was actually one of the funniest things they ever said? Has that moment ever happened?
0: Oh, I wish. Wouldn't that be great? No, that never <laughs> happened. No, there was a very illuminating moment happened one day. It was uh, It's in the episode where the Simpsons, where Bart and Lisa go to Duff Gardens mm-hmm. yeah. and it's a scene where uh, Bart dares Lisa to drink the water out of the uh, water ride like it's a small world. And she drinks the water and starts hallucinating. And I just want to mention as a side note, that's a true story. One of our writers, not when he was an eight-year-old, but when he was 32 years old, tried drinking the water on (laughs) Pirates of the Caribbean, and he was hallucinating (laughs) and sick for three days. So...
2: Wow, I was going to say in Australia. I always assumed that the water was indeed beer, but in Australia that was kind of a rite of passage that most parents will slip, you know, at least one beer to their to their kid, almost as like a um, to try and put them off the experience. But you you'll get one when you're about eight or nine, and then not again until you're eighteen.
0: <laughs> How's that working out?
2: Uh, alcoholism is through the roof, but we're a happy country.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you really are. So. Anyway, so when Lisa drinks the water from the pirate's ride, she starts hallucinating, and we have her go, I am the Lizard Queen, uh, which was a Jim Morrison reference. Uh, Jim Morrison from The Doors used to be the Lizard King. So she does the line. It's perfect. It gets a laugh. We record it a couple more times. And then finally she says, all right, what does it mean? And I said, doesn't anyone here get it? None of the cast got it. They go, I said, oh, it's a Jim Morrison joke, blah, 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 from the doors. And uh, I think Dan Castellaneta said, another writer's joke none of us get. So <laughs> the the point is just, yes, we give them lines all the time that they don't understand. They do them anyhow. They never question them.
2: That's, uh, well, I guess that's testament to the amazing professionalism and skill of those guys as actors to still be able to deliver that and sell the funny in it, even if they're not knowing where
0: it's coming from. That's absolutely true. You know, our cast members uh, earn each of them earn three hundred and thirty thousand dollars a week. They and they work two hours a week. And so I did the math. They make about forty fifty dollars a second and they're half the budget of the show. Those six actors. And yet none of us have ever begrudged them this. Not their big salary, their short work week. None of us have ever said, let's recast and find someone cheaper because they're that good and they're that easy to work with.
2: I just realized when you put it in a context like that, you could sneeze and you've earned 50 bucks, basically. <laughs> that's, that's pretty phenomenal. <laughs> it
0: says dough and we just pull out a 50. Here you go, Jeff.
1: <laughs> One of the underlying themes of your book is that the staff, they essentially feel lucky to be a part of the Simpsons family. What exactly makes the bond between the Simpsons staff so unique?
0: Well, it was. It was just a funny realization. It was, you know, I didn't think I would have any epiphanies writing this book. But as I'm writing, I go, where's the scandal? Where's the friction? You know? And I realized, oh, it's a happy place. That's the secret of the show. Everybody gets along. And at one point, the editor sent me a note because I was talking about how Al Jean has been running the show for 20 years and he goes, has there been any intrigue if people fought to try and be the boss instead? And I go, it was like, again, it was something I'd never occurred to me. It's like, no, nobody wants to be the boss. Nobody, there's no scheming. There's never been any kind of backdoor shenanigans or power plays or anything like that. Everyone just likes the job. One thing that happened, I'll say early on in The Simpsons, um, when we were doing the show, as soon as everyone's contract came up for renewal, they quit. Everyone left. I did it, too. After four years, I left the show thinking, I'm going to go off and create my own Simpsons. <laughs> everyone thought it was so easy, and everyone flopped. And I would say there there might have been four successes to come from the Simpson staff out of maybe 300 pilots that have been made. Everybody failed. And so – what happened after a while was people said, I'm not going anywhere. There, there came a point, and it took about 10 years of watching everybody fail around them, that the other writers said, this is the best job in the world. I'm not leaving. And, you know, we're at a point now, some of them should leave. They've been there 20 years, and uh, they've been there a little too long, but nobody's going anywhere.
2: Can I ask, so take your mind back to that moment where it's um, end of season four and and you guys are all running out with your bottles trying to catch lightning for a second time. Yeah. What are you proudest of now if you look back? Is it that two years or so where you took a risk, you went out, you made The Critic, which, I mean, has got a cult following in some ways could be considered ahead of its time. Like if you feel in the modern day streaming environment where and audiences are probably more receptive to a quick turnaround, a show that's making current references to movies that were out does that rank higher than the uber success and the the longevity that you've had through the simpsons because it's truly yours or do you look at what you've been able to inject into the simpsons as being a a um you know a a higher point for you
0: okay i'll i'll build to the one thing i take pride on in my career and it's not the critic and it's not the simpsons and it's not the simpsons Obviously, The Simpsons is this great, great thing, and I've given half my life to it, and uh, I ran the show. You know, people really liked the couple of years that I ran the show, but The Simpsons is a huge operation full of really talented people, and if it hadn't been me, it would have been somebody else. I really believe as much as I gave the show, if I'd never been born, the show would be exactly as good, because they're... It's just all good people working on it, and they would have found another guy. So I'm, I'm really happy I'm part of The Simpsons, but I don't take pride in it. It never gives me a big ego. As for The Critic, I don't even like it. I don't, <laughs> I don't like The Critic, uh, just cause, partly because it failed so badly and so utterly. <laughs> it failed twice on two networks in two years. And, you know, it's funny. The show is funny, but I wanted it to be more. I wanted it to be like The Simpsons. I wanted it to touch people's hearts. I wanted it to, uh, you know, have deeper characters and that kind of thing. And it never, all it was was jokes. So here's the funny part was this journalist, Matt Klickstein, came to me about writing the book, writing The Simpsons book. It wasn't going to be The Simpsons at all, by the way. It was this, this journalist I'd never met calls me up. He goes, Mike, you and me are going to go on the road and we're going to see Mike Reese's America. And that's going to be a book. And there won't be any Simpsons in the book at All, all right. So here we are two years later. The book comes out. It's 95 percent Simpsons. I We didn't go anywhere on the road. I've never been in a car with this guy. So, <laughs> but while we're, we were discussing the book, he said, and I wanted we should talk about the, the critic. And I go, I don't really like the critic. He goes, you don't like the critic. And he called the publisher. He doesn't like the critic. And the, <laughs> public, the publisher got so excited because I guess this is unique in history that a man who created the show wasn't in love with his own creation. So we got, I, I I don't know why everyone thought this is our selling point. The man who created the critic hates the <laughs> critic. So Matt Clickstein and I sit down, the journalists, we sit down. He goes, well, let's watch The Critic and see why you don't like the show. And we start watching the show, and I'm going, hey, this is pretty good. I don't (laughs) hate this show. So suddenly that's not in the book at all. We had lost our whole reason for writing it.
2: I'm picturing a, an editing room of like the critic guys coming in and you know, they've got posters of the critic up, there's, there's artwork of Jay and all that sort of stuff. And then they find out you don't like it. And it's a quick, like repaint the walls, get some new wallpaper in, <laughs> cover everything up to do with the critic.
0: That was, it It was really fun to do. We had fun. Uh, that was, it. I wish it had been more. I don't like how the show looks, you know, it was, uh, I you know The Simpsons is so perfect in how it looks, and a couple of shows have that really great look. And this the the critic was designed by committee. We it was supposed to be a competition. Four different artists were drawing characters. Brad Bird did a whole set of characters for the show. David Silverman did them. Rich Moore, who did Zootopia, did them. And Everett Peck, a very talented guy, who did the show Duckman. And they all did, and it was supposed to be, we're going to pick one. And I thought the best one was Brad Bird. He had a nice look. Uh, but the producers over me just go, all right, we'll take a little bit of this guy, and we'll put this guy's head on this person's shoulders, and we'll use one of these and one of that. And the show has no look. No no two characters on the critic look alike. They don't even look like they're from the same planet. And, and Jay Sherman, the critic, he's literally made from – bits of other characters and he's like a Frankenstein character. And he even looks like Frankenstein. He's got a flat head and (laughs) it's got a corner on one side. So that's it. It's something viscerally that bothers me whenever I watch the show.
2: And here I was thinking he was actually modeled on John Lovitz.
0: No, it was John said, whatever it is, he can't look like me. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, all cartoon characters look like John Lovitz. You know, Elmer <laughs> Fudd looks like John Lovitz.
1: <laughs> Do you think it's a case, because we were, say, eight to ten years old when that show came out, and people at the time, TV viewers, just didn't seem to pick up on it. People my age now, we go back and watch it, we really enjoyed The Critic. Was the world just not ready for The Critic yet?
0: Yeah. Uh, it deserved... It, des- it. I think if it had come along... If TV was back then the way it is today... It would have been a big hit. It would have been a big hit because it it played to a very narrow audience. You know, we were when we were writing the critic. We would do. We said, let's do six movie parodies a week, right? Let's. We knew the parodies were the gold. We'll do six movie parodies a week. And in the middle of her first year of production, we read an article that said the the average American sees one movie a year. So. Cool. <laughs> The audience had no idea what the hell we were talking about. So, yeah, it was a little ahead of its time. The, the, you know, Family Guy gets knocked all the time for ripping off The Simpsons. But uh, one of the creators said flat out, Oh, we took a lot from the critic. Yeah, the critic loved the pace and the cutaways. That came right from your show. So they did a little better with it. So, yeah, it, it definitely, it would, it would be much better as a Netflix show. Here's the problem now. There's been endless talk about rebooting the critic, saying, oh, let's do it now. Let's do it today. And John Lovitz, who didn't want to do the critic originally, now he's begging to do it. And he's begging to do it live action. And my problem, I'm the guy holding up the deal. And part of the problem is there are no TV film critics anymore. It just doesn't exist. And, you know, we could make them... You know, Mark Marin. we could put him in a garage doing a podcast, but that's really sad. The bigger problem is our whole cast is dead. You know, we've had the same Simpsons cast for 30 years, but in the short time since the critic went off, the guy who played the boss on the show is dead. The makeup lady is dead. The woman who played the little boy is dead. John Lovitz's career is dead. So. <laughs> Jeez, you guys really took the failure
2: hard, man. Like, you didn't need to go out and, and ice the cast.
0: <laughs> it is really sad. They were all great, but they were the favorite characters too, you know. And uh, So, that's, it would be too much for me, I think, to just start the whole thing up with the new cast, the new characters.
2: That is fair. It does... Um... Something that Dando has spoken about as an idea for The Simpsons, I'm not sure if you guys have ever played around with it, though, that that could help engage uh, the modern audience. Because, say, in Australia, for example, it's quite hard to watch new episodes now. And it's the DVDs are difficult to get a hold of, all that sort of stuff. Have you ever considered making webisodes or doing little, you know, 10-minute shorts where you might just do a straight-out movie parody a la A Treehouse of Horror but without the need to make it you know, quote-unquote, a horror segment?
0: Oh, to do that with The Simpsons? Yeah. yeah. Um, no, we've never thought about it. It's really hard just making The Simpsons. It's super hard. It's all we can do is to make the friggin' show. And, you know, and then we did the movie on top of doing the TV show, and that was really hard. The one thing we do that's like that is – every couple of months we make a Donald Trump short. We make an anime as Simpsons do their take on Donald Trump and we put it on YouTube and it'll get 12 million hits. But I don't even like doing that, you know, and I, cause I, what I, one thing I like about the Simpsons and nobody believes this is it's not a topical show. It's not timely. Everybody thinks, Oh, it's so topical and ripped from today's headlines. But it takes us a year to make an episode of The Simpsons, so it's never topical, it's never timely, and I think that's why it ages so well, as you can watch a show and not know, was it made last year or 25 years ago? Well, if if you
2: want to believe any one of a number of clickbaity articles, it's uh, actually ripped from the future's headlines.
0: Oh, yeah, isn't that great? Yeah, that's, that's really...
2: Even a stopped clock tells the future twice a year.
0: really funny thing, we got one in a row. We picked Donald Trump. You know, <laughs> we got that right. Uh, all the other predictions are all sort of bogus or they're a little obvious. You know, oh, there will be an Olympics. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Donald Trump, yeah, we got it. I remember the day. It was It was the year 2000. And we're just sitting in the room going, all right, we need a joke. What's the dumbest thing we could imagine America doing? And somebody said, <laughs> President Trump. And it wasn't a great joke, but it was good enough. I remember thinking, it's too dumb for the Simpsons, President Trump. But okay, we did the joke. And now, you know, 16 years later, it happened. So now everybody thinks, oh, the great prophets. Oh, the Simpsons sees it coming. And our ratings went up last year. And I think it's people like that who are just – looking for a window into the future they don't even think of us as a cartoon show this is like reading the horoscope to watch the Simpsons.
1: <laughs> it's funny you say the ratings have gone up last year because i try to keep up the date with the, with the newer episodes and i've found the quality of the last say two seasons has really picked up have there been any changes behind the scenes because i'm re- i'm really starting to love the show again like i used to
0: yes i agree i can't deny it and you know our fans they were so sour for so long and they were probably right. We just weren't doing it Yeah, We made one big change, which I think is what helped the show, which was, uh, Matt Selman, who's sort of the second in command executive producer, uh, asked if he could produce four episodes a year on his own. So suddenly Al Jean, instead of having to grind out 22 episodes a year, which is literally impossible. I mean, we would do the job. It was so hard. Now Al can make 18 much better episodes and Matt Selman can handcraft four episodes on his own. And that's made all the difference. That's it. You know, Family Guy did something similar where Seth MacFarlane just said, I can't do 22 a year anymore. And they cut back, I think, to 18. I think they only do 18 episodes a year. And it's great. You shouldn't just make a lot of episodes because that's the number you know, TV always made. Mm. This is the whole reason TV in general is great now. TV, Netflix, and HBO. every You know, you can't think of a bad show. Every once in a while I have to make a joke that involves a real rotten show, and there are no rotten shows anymore, and it's because everybody only makes as many as they think are good. You know, you make six, and then you take a year off. Something like Veep will do that. They did ten they take two years off. They don't come back till they think they've got a good show. Yeah. Since this is one of the last dinosaurs of just old TV cranking out 22 every year. So that's it. The breakdown of labor, I think, has really helped the show.
2: When you guys first started, there was. Whether it was by design or by accident, there was a real feeling of anti-establishment about the show. You guys had really, really unique voices. You were a show unlike any that had come before it. And then, obviously, and I talk a little bit about this in our book, that eventually you kind of become... You start off as anti-culture or counterculture, and then you become culture... Yeah. What is your overriding vision for the show now behind the scenes? Like, what identity are you guys trying to imbue the show with?
0: Yeah, we, you know, we're just making the exact same show we always made. I mean, that's that's what I feel. It's the same level of outrageousness and fast pace and the, you know, the dollop of satire and that kind of and the mix of smart and stupid jokes, you know. Uh, I had a day the other day at work where I was just there at work. And I said, this felt this day felt exactly like a day in the first season. It was just sort of this fun mix. I don't know what it was, but it was just sort of the the room was popping and everyone was excited. And it felt just like the old days. So it's not us. We you know, it's a pretty consistent product. It's just sort of the world came to accept it and, uh, you know, When our show first debuted in in 1989 we were condemned by the national council of churches 25 years later the show was endorsed by the pope (laughs) by pope benedict who says i love the simpsons it's the most christian show on television and the show hasn't changed at all it's just perception and the world has changed
1: Going back to the start, the first three episodes that you and Al wrote were There's No Disgrace Like Home, Moaning Lisa, and The Telltale Head. Now, these three episodes, for me anyway, they're they very, very different from one another. Was there any clear yeah. direction from Matt on how he wanted the characters portrayed at that stage from the show? Or was it just, let's just see it evolve naturally? Was that the vibe?
0: It was really in the show forever, from that moment to this moment. We're just, we're not artists. We don't have a grand vision. There's no arc to the show. I think... All of us just think of it as this big hole in the ground that we shovel jokes into every week We're just shoveling in the gags. And that was it. Yeah, those are very different episodes. Uh, no Disgrace Like Home is really funny to watch now. This is the one that uh, Homer is ashamed of his family and yeah. they wind up all, all anyone remembers about the show is the family is electrocuting each other at the end. And that's funny and memorable. But you watch the show; it's completely upside down and yeah, backwards. It's, uh, it's broken. It's, it's, it it <laughs> makes no sense. To... <laughs> I, I,
2: I say that with all affection in the world, but yeah, the characters are just Marge's a drunk, Lisa's Bart essentially. Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Lisa's Bart. Lisa's line, which I think got cut after the first showing, her first line in the show is, "Let's go throw rocks at some swans." <laughs> yeah. So that's not a real Lisa line. Homer sells the family TV to pay for family therapy. And it's like, no, no, that's not Homer.
1: (laughs) Well, Lisa, she evolved a lot in the first season. Her defining episode was that Moaning Lisa episode, a story pitched by James L. Brooks, which focuses on Lisa suffering depression. You'd already done an episode where Homer considered suicide before that. Were you consciously taking risks with dark subject matter like that?
0: No. I I mean, I think... There was a little bit of the show, the idea, just let's do things we never saw on TV before. Mm -hmm. And there there was a big notion, I say say it all the time, that we never thought it would succeed. There's not one person working at The Simpsons who thought it was anything more than we thought, this will be a fun summer replacement. You know, we made 13 episodes. We actually, everybody thought we'd get canceled after six, because back in those days, When you try to do something different and experimental on TV, they cancel you after six episodes. So we had no hope for it ever going anywhere. So it's like, well, let's just try a bunch of stuff that we'll never get to do anywhere. So let's do a whodunit in this one episode. We'll do a real mystery. And then the next one will be a parody of a French film nobody's seen. And that was it. It Is it? So we've just done this very slapstick episode with the family shocking each other. And then Jim Brooks came to us and said, here's the plot for the next episode. And Al Jean and I are so excited working with James L Brooks, Oscar winning director. We go, what's the plot? He goes, Lisa is sad. (laughs) That was all he gave us. And we go, Oh shit. You know, (laughs) which what a great use of animation. (laughs) And, And everybody was mocking us. Sam Simon said to us, he wanted to do that plot on Taxi and nobody would let him. And Matt Grigman was always smirking. He would say, what are you working on? And we said, we're writing Lisa is sad. And he goes, oh, you're the guys who got stuck with that one. But so we wrote it. And Jim, really, everything that's kind of good in that episode came from Jim Brooks. And it changed the show. It changed the show forever. And especially... America woke up, you know, especially the moms of America woke up and said, oh, this this show is more than just slapstick Mm. and naughtiness and dirty language. It's you know, it can it's deep. It's thoughtful. It can move people. It has credible women characters. So it was a great, great thing to be in tap force on us.
2: It's funny that you mentioned that Jim was pitching that from one epi- or from one show to another because I it was a bucket list movie for me just two nights ago I sat down and watched broadcast news for the first time and was really struck by the fact that both Albert Brooks' character and Holly Hunter's character in that are two people that are fundamentally very sad people through what is essentially a romantic comedy that it's obviously a, a hang-up that jim's had for a while of wanting to sorry sorry your book said you get to call him jim for me it's mr brooks but it's <laughs> a um obviously he's wanted to mind you know comedy in dark places or in sad places for some time
0: yes he's, he's an amazing character he's uh because he's just been a titan you know nobody has done what jim brooks has done he is uh He's just conquered movies, won the Oscar, everything. He's won so many Oscars for actors. He's a terrific director. And then is the king of TV, too. Just made one classic TV show after another. And, you know, very pretty late in a TV writer's career. He must have been about 45 or 50 when he came up with The Simpsons and changed TV forever. And, you know, had the hugest hit of his career of all. And so he's, he's had nothing but success and he's a happy man. He's just buoyant and that kind of thing. And yet, yes, he goes to all these dark places. It's, there's always darkness. And he had a very kind of terrible, sad upbringing that you don't want to ask him about and mm-hmm. he doesn't talk about. So yeah, he's he, it comes from him. He, he goes and I, I look at even his comedies and go, they're not comedies. They're very, very sad stories with really funny lines in it. And they're also really terrible things happening to very witty people.
2: Well, I'm yeah. glad that we've taken it into this area. Um,
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> we are coming towards the end of the hour that we've got with you, Mike. So I wanted to uh, throw to a couple listen to questions if I could. Sure. The first one is a perfect mix of what to... A lot of the listeners that hear this, and to myself, is going to sound like an exciting idea, but to you is going to sound like an extraordinarily tiring amount of work.
0: Okay. I love it.
2: Good. (laughs) Is there any chance... We've seen um, South Park have quite a bit of success in recent times with the video games The Stick of Truth and The Fractured Butthole? The Simpsons hasn't made a video game for a very, very long time. Is there any chance of an upcoming project could it, could it be pitched to Fox that perhaps the Simpsons in a role playing game scenario with the technology where it is just being able to inhabit Springfield basically I think there's a uh, a strong push for that in the gaming community
0: Oh wow I don't know I, I got to say I don't know anything about that world we we did tapped out which mm. you know was venturing into some kind of territory and became it was for a while, at least, the biggest game in America, and it's still it's still big and still popular. And I've got to say, I've never looked at it. I don't even know what it is, uh, but it's popular. So that's not role playing. That doesn't put you into Springfield. I think it's uh, it's kind of
2: a world building scenario, from it's what like I Like the understand. Sims games. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Like a, it's a SimCity version of Springfield, basically. Um, oh, that was I'm from sorry. Joseph O'Hara. That question. The second question we have comes from Kenny Gad are there any episodes or perhaps moments within episodes that you would change if you could with different social attitudes of today? So, do you ever look back at something and go, oh, if I knew then what I know now, maybe I wouldn't have written that?
0: You know, no. I, it's just my personal opinion that, uh, you know, the past is the past. And you can't, you should never judge the present. You should never judge the past by present standards. It's just not fair and it's not right and you know i look at old movies that have sort of like a a racist black character in it and Mm -hmm. they'll cut it out and i go you know it was okay then you know or steven spielberg taking the guns out of et and Mm -hmm. putting in a flashlight it was okay then so no it's just something i don't believe in you know you just gotta understand oh i'm watching something old they thought differently then and some you know You'll go, now we're doing everything right, and the future's going to be perfectly happy with us in 20 years, and that won't be true either. Yeah.
2: So I was having this conversation with a friend, and I fundamentally, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you, actually, in that it's weird how it goes with comedy, in that George Carlin, who was so edgy for his time, you look back at now, and you go, yeah, most of that stuff pretty tame by today's standards, whereas Eddie Murphy, which, I mean, I grew up watching Delirious as a teenager, but you couldn't possibly try to show that to someone now who had never seen it before and have them laugh at that out of context or without understanding the time and place. No
0: kidding. Is it a lot of homophobia? I know that popped up a lot. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Can I... Let me jump in, actually, because I never finished one of my long-winded answers. So I didn't like... I'm not proud of The Simpsons or The Critic. I created a cartoon in 2000 called Queer Duck. Yes. And it was about a gay duck and his gay animal friends and people... I've never heard a queer duck. Uh, All the episodes are on YouTube. And I did it as an act of conscience. I read an article in the paper saying there are no gay characters on television. This is in the year 2000. Now there's lots of them. But back then, and I said, that's not right. And I make cartoons. So I'm going to create a gay Bugs Bunny, you know, and the and the Elmer Fudd will be the straight guy, the gay, it'll be a gay empowered cartoon character. And at the time in 2000, nobody had seen anything like it. And especially the gay community loved it. And I'm not gay, I'm not gay, but, uh, and I, I went to the company said, if you'd rather have a gay writer, write this, that'll be fine. They said, no, no, you do it. And so I wrote this thing and it was so popular for a couple of years. But I had to stay in the closet as a straight man. And, and that was it. The, the gay community was so grateful. And the straight community liked it. It was just a funny cartoon. So that's the thing I'm proudest of in my whole career. Is the one time I tried to do something nice and, and it was appreciated.
2: That's really beautiful. I That's actually made me think of... Carl from uh, Simpson and Delilah, voiced by Harvey firestein who I thought for a very long time was one of the best portrayed, I mean, it's unspoken homosexuality really in that episode, but one of the best portrayed gar- characters to that point on TV that he just, he was, and you knew he was, but it was never once used as a punchline. It was just there. And I thought that that was right. great from, from the early days of the show.
0: Queer Duck, I'll say, came out of that realization. It's just what we're talking about, which was, I was watching some 80s or 90s comedy that had this gay character, who was just super over the top and they would just use him. He would get scared. He, he got scared and would run out of a room shrieking. And I go, Oh, that's what they used to do with black guys in the thirties. They would get scared and their eyes would pop and they'd run away. And it just hit me. I go in 20 years, this is all going to look so bad. Mm. This is going to look so wrong. And, let me try and address it right now, and that's that was literally what Queer Duck came from was just this realization how bad our treatment of gay people was in comedy up until at least up until the year two thousand
2: and let us not forget our treatment of gay ducks
0: <laughs> and gay ducks. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy that I got that sentence out of you um, I, I'm going to ask a final question if I could Because I'm fascinated by what your answer might be And it's a chance for you to be able to espouse uh, Some some just glowing praise on someone else You have worked in the writer's room on Johnny Carson You've obviously worked on The Simpsons, The Critic, Queer Duck, as we've mentioned uh, Alf, It's Gary Shandling Show, which is... I think it went to air at like three in the morning on a Sunday in Australia, but it, it has survived through YouTube and I've seen enough of it to know it's genius. Who is the funniest person that you have ever worked with that did not work on the Simpsons?
0: Oh, the funniest guy I ever worked with that didn't work on the Simpsons. It's really funny because it's, the Simpsons has become like flypaper, where every funny person is sooner or later wound up working there. It was a, there's a guy named Tom Gamble who's very, very funny and worked on Seinfeld and Letterman. And I got the Simpsons job because he turned it down. They wanted Tom. They got me. And now, of course, he's at the Simpsons. I don't know. There's a guy named Chuck Tatham who's really funny. He's Canadian and he might be on Big Bang Theory now. But uh, he was really he's a really funny guy that, you know, nobody's ever heard of. Uh, that's the name that comes to mind that. Uh, I'll I'll tell you kind of an interesting story, and it's the one story that got cut from my book, and my book is called Springfield Confidential, and you can even get it in Australia. What a pro! I was out of work in L.A. I was a young guy, had no job, no prospect, and the only thing that got me through the week, because this is before DVDs and internet and everything, was, you you know, you just had to watch what was on TV, and there was a show on Wednesday nights that was so terrible (laughs) I couldn't believe it. It was a it was a sitcom called nine to five. It was based on an old movie. And I could I was just jaw dropping how bad this sitcom was week after week. And so one week I get a call. Hey, it's nine to five. We're looking for writers. And I went in and they start telling me. And here it is. It's about three women who live in an apartment. And I go, yeah, I know. And they work in a company that makes slotted spoons and the son sleeps on a bed over the kitchen sink. And they go, you watch the show? I go, yeah, I watch it every week. They go, you're hired. They never <laughs> just because I was the one guy who actually watched their show. And they didn't know I hate watched it. So I go to work on the worst show in TV history. And I meet the writers there. And they were all great. They were all so funny. I just thought they would be a bunch of brain-dead hacks. But no, there was just something endemically wrong with this show and the people running the show were not very good that that was it and so that's something I found working TV writers are almost all really funny. they're much funnier than your friend you meet in a pub or something they they're 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 all pretty great, pretty smart they would rather be doing good things than bad and then, again, that's why TV's good now is the model has changed where, good writers can make good TV the, the PS to that story is I get to work on this the worst show I ever saw in history and 12 weeks later, they fired me because I was not good enough to write for the first show in history.
2: Excellent. That's a really fantastic place to wrap the interview up, I think. Um, as, as Mike said, the book Springfield Confidential is available all around the world. I'm not sure if you've been translated, but I'm sure it's not far away from happening. It's an excellent read. Like, thank you very much for the um, advanced copy you sent through for this interview. But as Dando mentioned, we've both ordered copies as well. And it, it is really, really funny and insightful.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And if you're too cheap to buy my book, you can follow me on Twitter for free uh, at Mike Reese Writer, R E I S S, Mike Reese Writer. And thank you, guys. Thank you. This is, I've done 10,000 podcasts promoting the book. These were the smartest questions. This was a lot of fun. So thank you. Thank you.
1: And I must say, before we go, Mike, whether you like to believe it or not, The Simpsons would not be the same without you. So thank you for all your contributions over the last 30 years.
0: Great. That has been a pleasure. It's been. I love going into work every single week.
1: Well, you have a great day, Mike, and Thanks again.
0: Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. <laughs>